0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: Today, I've been told we are going to be talking about Hillary Thomas Stewart, I have no idea who that person is. And so, Garen, please introduce us, and I'm excited to hear the story. Yep. And before we jump in, I also want to read a review that we got on the book, because every now and then we want to spotlight. We have a book and remind you guys that we would love for you to buy it and read it. So, review on Amazon from Marty. Marty, thank you for writing this. He said, This book is very well written and includes truthful history, which we need to face as a society in order to move forward. In love and justice. This is a life changing book. You'll never be the same after reading it, but that's good. Life is about learning, growing, and changing, not romanticizing some distilled and sanitized version of the past. When we face our history truthfully, we are no longer doomed to repeat it and continue it. In the process, we can grow into a better person. So thank you, Marty, for taking the time to write that. Wow. Thank you, you, Marty. If you haven't got the book already, I think it's really good. And Marty thinks. Marty so says so, it's great. Yeah. So, so check it out. Well, in other news, sometimes we don't get the best reviews. And so I just maybe I would just like to read a one star podcast review that someone left for us. <laughs> Go for by it. By Left Wing Destroyed. Here it is. One star. Bigoted racism. Sweet and short. <laughs> so, as Thank much you. as we're feeling great about the book review, we get those wonderful we also, one star. That
2: keeps us humble. A, yeah, it keeps
1: us humble. But appreciate any reviews. So thanks Thank for that. Thank you. Yeah. I don't it, know if it was a constructive critique, but it's y- funny. Y- Our yeah. podcast reviews are almost all either five star or one star. Or one. <laughs> yes. Nothing in between. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, so Hillary Thomas Stewart. And this episode is is not so much, I would say, about Hillary Thomas Stewart. It's about the life and family and legacy of Hillary Thomas Stewart through time. Kind of tracing generations of various episodes of racism and kind of tying together some of the types of things that we've talked about through history and showing how they affected a single family line. Okay. So our story starts with a man, Hillary Thomas Stewart, who, yeah, is somewhat an obscure figure in history. But he was able to purchase his own freedom before the end of slavery. So that kind of gave him a head start and a leg up in acquiring and purchasing land. And he was eventually able to own more than five hundred acres as a black man. So Stuart intended to pass that land down to his heirs and just think what that would have meant for generations of black people coming from a system where, I mean, most of them had very little education, but to have 500 acres of land that they could farm used to build wealth Use to use that money and the profits and proceeds. Yeah. To I mean, that would be helpful children. now. Like that's what people do now to, ha- to be able to have houses and land to yeah. pass down to generations. Is to have valuable, yeah, to have that now would be incredible. But to have that land for a hundred years in the interim and to have it have been building wealth that whole time and creating stability for a family for generations. So Stuart wanted to pass that down, but in those days, shortly after the end of slavery and throughout the Jim Crow era there were all kinds of ways that white people and white institutions banks lenders used to take land and that is what happened to Story. he went from 500 acres and basically the short of it is it was all taken from him one tract at a time
2: well and he acquired that 500 acres of land by the time he turned 21 And it was in Goldsboro, North Carolina.
1: Mm -hmm. So he came from enslavement. He had no ability to read. And over the course of time, banks and lenders and local governments used his lack of an education against him and essentially tricked him into signing contracts that had provisions that sometimes even obscure minor provisions that they could later use to take or reclaim his land. So, one of the larger tracts, just for example, was claimed by a local government because of an $18 unpaid tax bill, even though the land itself was worth a hundred times that amount. The system, like the courts, the judges, the people, everyone was kind of using the letter of the law and conspiring in order to try to take the land. It was auctioned off at a discount to white families. It was all purchased by white families. And so, during the course of his life. He lost all of his land. And this is something that was all, happening all throughout America. Between 1910 and 1997, black farmers lost control of more than 90% of their farmlands, according to the Department of Agriculture. So, this was not just an isolated incident in one town where racist rules prevailed. This was a nationwide... Not a conspiracy, it was more distributed than that, more grassroots than that, but a nationwide slanted system that took land from black people and tended towards just employing them as labor, but taking away their ability to have an ownership stake in the land and what it produced. During the American history of slavery, there were about 400 billion hours of labor that were stolen from enslaved black people. That has like a net present value today if you add it up of $6 trillion of stolen labor, stolen production. And not only when slavery ended, not only was there no 40 acres and a mule, no reparations, no equitable education system, no on-ramp to full citizenship, but there was a continued process of stealing and taking even the small fruits of what the formerly enslaved people were able to work to achieve. There was continued fraud, deception, and violence that took much of this land. And even that which wasn't taken through fraud, outright deception, or violence was oftentimes taken through cutthroat dealings or denied loans. Black people then and now, this is still a problem today, black people are less likely to have loans approved and more likely to have higher interest rates. So, the reparations were not paid in in full or large measure to freedmen after the end of slavery, but that doesn't mean there were no reparations. The reparations that existed were mostly paid to former Confederates. Land was restored to former Confederates. The crimes of former Confederates were removed and forgotten. Well, any black freedmen who had crimes alleged against them didn't get the same kind of uh, annulments of their crimes. There, in 19, 1865... Hold on. F- wait, you're saying they, there was a budget? There was like a reparations budget? Yeah. So and then it went to... Let me give one, one example. The Freedmen's Bureau was set up by the federal government to help black people who are in the South. And the Freedmen's Bureau did a lot of good things to help black people in the South have a, a start towards citizenship. But the Freedmen's Bureau provided 500,000 rations but less than 1% went to freed blacks. Most of them went to the wives and families of deceased Confederate soldiers, according to the National Archives and Records Administration. That's crazy. There was a system that was set up, but white people still controlled and had power over how the system was deployed and operated. The Freedmen's Bureau, there are other types of work that they did that were more equitable, but there was a lot of ways in which the reparations that were paid were not paid to black people or black families. That's crazy. Uh, That's almost unbelievable. Mm, yep. If it wasn't for, I mean, the source is the actual National Archives. So the there was generational poverty, obviously, that resulted, and we've talked about this a lot in past episodes, how it takes more than a generation to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oftentimes, wealth is built over the course of many generations of yeah. people having the money to send their kids to school and give them an upbringing where they have a start, helping them build early connections to a career, relationships that take time to form as a family gets roots in it in local context that, that they can leverage for opportunity. So Hillary Thomas Stewart, he lost all that. He didn't have the opportunity to build that. And so then there was generations of struggle and poverty that resulted he lived with anxiety and depression for more than a decade. After all of his land was stripped away, he outlived the loss of it, and he died at the age of eighty in nineteen thirty-seven. And his son, Hillary Thomas Stewart Jr., took over. I mean, there wasn't really an estate at that point because it had all been lost. But he took over the family, and he had little choice but to work for white families as a sharecropper. And so that's what he did. He worked on maybe even some of the same land. Only under conditions that were completely dictated by the white landowners over this land that he and his family had lost. And we talked before about sharecropping. Katina, do you want to do a recap on just for maybe listeners who have joined us more recently that, that don't know about how sharecropping operated and the injustice of the system of sharecropping? And we did an episode on this. But yeah. yeah. We've we, ta- not a full episode, but we've talked about it in a few different episodes.
2: Basically, the way sharecropping worked is that white. Most often, like former slave owners or former enslavers or children of enslavers would have land that they would make or that they would have black farmers work on. And they would basically rent out the space to the workers and they worked it off. And they would trump up all these weird charges for every little thing, for seed, for All kinds of, yeah, for every little thing to keep racking the bill up so that the sharecropper could never really pay off working their land. So, or never really pay off the space that they rented. So they would become indebted for generations to these landowners, these white landowners. And it was just a system of, it, it was almost like an indentured servitude or an enslavement in itself that just never ended. Yeah is a cycle of
1: it was like another system that could have helped things if it was done the right way right but yeah it wasn't in the majority of cases black sharecropping families got no money at the end of an entire right. year absolutely so i mean if you're working and you're getting no money obviously rings like it's like pretty similar to enslavement in some cases they would but the way that it worked was basically the food would be sold or the cotton or the tobacco or whatever it is they were farming would be sold and from that profits those profits would be split but then the black family would have to repay the white farmer for anything that they owed and the white farmer could basically say well you used our like tools and our seed and you stayed in like the former slave quarters the property on like the shack on the land And also the other thing that was unfair about it is they. there was oftentimes in the contracts, there was a provision that the black sharecroppers had to sell the picked cotton or tobacco or whatever it was to the landowner at whatever price he dictated. So there wasn't like a fair market price. It was like the white landowner could say, well, this is only worth this fraction of what it's actually worth. And that's the money that would then be divided. And then the system, I mean, you can see how similar to slavery, it was in the fact that oftentimes sharecroppers would try to flee because they would end up in accruing more and more debt that they would end up having to flee. And there were literally, they would chase them down and pull them off trains as they were trying to escape and, re- and force them to continue working on their farms. It was actually criminalized through the black codes for black sharecroppers to look for alternative employment without a release from the landowner. They actually had to have a signed release in certain states in order to even look for an alternative job because they were trapped in this work through debt that basically the debt was leveraged to to impose something that was very much like slavery. Yeah. And so, that's what this family drifted into. And so, Hillary Thomas Stewart Jr. lived his whole life as a sharecropper and in that time was able to build no wealth because it was a trap. There was no way to build wealth. It was just something that you did to survive and there was no no family growth from it. His daughter, Laura Ann, and her husband, who she met, H.B. Jones, were then also stuck as sharecroppers. And this is how the system was designed is that then the children would have nothing new or different to build their life upon than what their parents had. So it was a durable system that lasted for generations. On one occasion, the Jones family, so this is now the grandchildren of Hillary Thomas Stewart. In one case, the Jones family worked extremely hard all year because the landowner had told them that anything past that they grew tobacco and the landowner said anything past this quota, you will have a hundred percent of it. You can sell it and you'll have the, he set the quota high, like where they might not even achieve it, but said, if you can grow more than this quota, you can keep the extra and you can sell it and have the money. And so this was suddenly this incredible opportunity for this family to actually build some kind of nest egg. And so they worked extremely hard all through the year, worked long hours, and were like, we are going to just double down on our effort this year and exceed this quota so that we can have something. But the night that they did, they exceeded the quota. They had all this extra tobacco and they were talking about, I mean, it was going to be a couple hundred dollars, which was a lot back then, that they were going to be able to invest into ways to improve and grow their family. But the night that the tobacco was gathered, the barn containing all the tobacco burned down and destroyed everything. And it was years later discovered that the landowner had deliberately burned it down because he had an insurance claim on the barn. So he filed with insurance and got reimbursed for all the lost tobacco and for the barn itself, so insurance fraud. And then he also, he didn't tell the Stewart family this at the time, he made them repay the value of the barn and the lost tobacco over the course of the next five years. So the landowner basically sees... Hmm. They're going to get some kind of nest egg here that could basically give them leverage to escape from my power. And so he burns down the barn and then forces them for the next five years to work for like even less than what they were already working for to repay him Hmm. for the value of the lost barn. And... I mean, what were they going to do? This was the system. They had the courts at that time. I mean, throughout the entirety of the South, it was like a joke to try to get any kind of justice in the courts. If you were a black family accusing a white family, their word would universally be believed over yours. Even in the cases where there were ledgers and actual written documentation, the value of a white person's word would be taken over black extemporaneous notes from a black person. I mean, and this is where you hear about all these court cases where just white juries over and over and over again would acquit people who had even were known to be guilty of lynching or killing black people. The courts actually made it impossible to get justice in most cases in the South. So then the Joneses, they lost everything. They ended up in a three bedroom shack that had no plumbing and only occasional bouts of electricity. And this is like, I mean, we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s here. Three-bedroom shack, no plumbing, only occasional electricity. The landowner wouldn't let them light a fire to warm the shack. And so they at one point lost one of their children who was born and died of pneumonia after a month because it was too cold at night throughout the winter. And so they lost one of their babies while the landowner wouldn't let them light a fire, probably because he owned the shack and they were tenants on it. And he, maybe even under this false threat, even though he had burned the barn down himself under this false threat, I don't trust you guys with fire. He wouldn't let them light a fire to warm the shack. And so they lived with such violent cold that it actually, they lost one of their children due to it. But then that was just also their daily life. And Laura Ann, she later recalled how she would feed her children meats and produce from a local store that would continually sell her meat that was near to the point of spoiling and vegetables that were bruised. And it was just the, the daily kind of racism that they had to live with. You, they would go to the store and this the food that they were given was the food that the store wanted to get rid of quick because it was about to spoil or go bad. So H.B., uh, Lorraine's husband, had to get a job in the 60s as a cook for a segregated barbecue joint. He cooked in the back room out of sight of the all-white customers who were treated by an all-white front-end staff who served food that was cooked by an all-black cook staff in the back. And Laura Ann would later go on to die in poverty with nothing. But her legacy came from the fact that through the hard work of HB and Laura Ann, they were able to put all of their children all the way through high school, which fulfilled her greatest dream. So even in the midst of such oppression and such uh, i mean and this is like we're talking this is modern era i mean this is like there are people alive today who were already adults by the time these things were happening we're talking the, the 60s here and even though they had no ability to do anything to substantially change their situation in this life they what they did do was they put their children through school all the way through high school and that was not an easy task back then a lot of towns didn't even have high schools And schools were segregated, so the way to go to high school was for the children themselves to actually oftentimes walk miles and miles every day to go to whichever neighboring town happened to have a high school that would allow them to attend if they were black. And so one of Laura Ann's children was her daughter Arsenia, who graduated from high school, fulfilling her mother's dream, making her mother proud to have something to show for her life at the end of it. And Arsenia just went on to another generation of struggle. So to make ends meet, Arsenia, she took a job in New York and she was able to leverage the high school education that she had to try to carve out better opportunity for herself. She was able to get up to New York, which, I mean, that was no small feat at that point. If you have nothing and you're coming from nothing, to be able to go to a new city, that would be a scary and difficult transition without having a nest egg that you know you can land on there to get started but she went and she took the risk and she got a job working for a white family for $3 an hour and was able to use that to, to create a life up in New York. And it was there that she met her husband, George, and they were happily married. Arsenia was the kind of woman who served others without limits, even despite not having much to her name. She served and took care of those around her. There's one story her family would later recall at one point, there was a drunk man who accidentally wandered into the family unit, mistaking it for his own. So he thought he came home and then realized, Oops, this is not my home. And he was embarrassed. He started to go. He said, like, apologetic. But Arsenia, who also went by Sissy, said that the man shouldn't leave, that he didn't have to go any sooner than he wanted to, and she went and pulled him a plate out and just served mm. him some dinner. Wow. So, I am mean, that kind of person who just... You were welcome. Come. And that would be unheard of today. <laughs> even through the struggles of life, she loved and she was generous and she did what she could to build a life that would pass on something, even maybe a better opportunity for her children. And she would go on to have children. She named her third son George after his father. And this George was George Floyd, who we all have heard of and know of, and who We're going to do an episode. Our next episode is going to be a full story of his life. And he was born in the Sleepy Hollows Mobile Home Park in North Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1973. And so before doing an episode on George Floyd, I think we wanted to take this time to look at his family history and where he came from, because the story is not just a story of one man who ran into struggle and racism and was ultimately killed for the color of his skin. The story of George Floyd has roots that go back generations and generations of injustice, of struggle. And we'll see as we talk about George Floyd's life, that that struggle was not just something that landed on him at the very end of his life, but was something that he faced throughout his whole life. And so his story is an indictment of not just... One officer, but of the entirety of American history that led his family from a, a starting place that I mean five hundred acres should have put them on a track to be in a completely different place than they landed, but it was through generations and generations of injustice that George Floyd was born in a mobile home park rather than in a large, loving home that was protected and guarded through justice that gave him opportunity to become whoever and whatever he wanted to be and so that is the backdrop into which we're going to tell our story for our next episode